Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. G'day folks, welcome to the episode. Now, it's quite an interesting one today and it's all centred around a bit of digging Mikey's been doing on the internet. Yes, mate, I was doing a bit of non-adult related trawling on the net and I I came across a a flat earth account with 30,000 followers. 30,000? 30,000 people who are following an account which purports that the earth is flat. And what's the basis? Well, mate, as always... Blame the Brits and blame the Victorians. No, no you're not talking Dan Andrews, Victorians. No, we are talking about the age of Victoria. And, mate, when we're talking about Flat Earth and the Victorians, there are two sides of the Atlantic and two myths we need to break up. Now, the first one was the one we were taught at school. That, you know, that it was commonly believed that Columbus was the only person in his era that thought the Earth was round. I'm talking about in Europe. Which, of course, we know is not true, don't we, from our earlier episode? Because, in fact, in his journals, he describes the Earth as breast-shaped with, <laughs> with those nipples. And that's just one of his many miscalculations. That's right. But the most important thing about that is that not only did he not think the Earth was flat, no one in 15th century Europe didn't think the Earth was round. Sure, we're going to have to wait a few more years until Galileo and Copernicus come along, but right back to Pythagoras and the ancient Greeks, Europeans have known for centuries that the Earth is not flat. I mean, let's face it, the ancient Greeks saw that the moon was round, the sun was round, they were both going round and round, so consequently, fair chance the Earth was round. And yeah, of course, you've got those medieval Mapai Monday, haven't you? The, the maps like the one at Hereford. Sure, they may be flat two-dimensional pictures, but they certainly show that the world is a circle. My favourite of that is it actually comes from the Norse. It's, it's called the Kunong's Skuzja. And they used the shadow cast by an apple next to a candle to show the Earth's relationship to the sun and the moon. Actually, Mike, it is even a case to be made that we can go back as far as the Babylonians because we found this stone steely that's carved with a picture of the world, certainly in a circular shape. So where does this theory come from that Columbus was the only guy who didn't think the Earth was flat? Well, man, it comes from the 19th century Americans, yeah, from the Victorian era. Remember that time in the 19th century? We've talked about this before. The Americans are pushing the, you know, the great myth-making of Columbus as the hero, the discoverer. You know, there's the Columbian Exposition, the yes. World's Fair in Chicago. Right. So they want their hero to fit this nationalist push of American exceptionalism. And the biggest contributing factor is the 1825 four-volume, and I hate these two words, historical fiction. <laughs> it's called History of the Life and Voyages of Christopher Columbus by Washington Irving. Washington Irving, as in Rip Van Winkle in the, the Legend of Sleepy Hollow, mate, Irving. Mate, one and the same. It's a bestseller. And Columbus is portrayed in this as the lone genius battling against the flat earthers. Ah. And also, too, the myth grows into how Columbus discovered America, not just the Americas. Right. And this is repeated as fact by a guy called Andrew Dixon Wright in his 1896, and you're going to love this title, History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom. The Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom. Oh, imagine trying to get that into school libraries these days, Maggie. You have a few angry parents meeting on that one. But see, here's the thing. 
Irving didn't just make up this flat earth theory himself. He's drawing on someone else's work. And for historical legitimacy, he zeroes in on the Vatican and these beautiful works by a guy called, and bear with me, Cosmos Indigo Pluestes. All right, folks, so we're talking about flat earthers. And as Mike has shown, it's not Columbus who's to blame. It's much more the Victorians and their reliance on a guy you've called Cosmos? Cosmos Indico Ploestes. Mm. Okay, he's a mid-6th century merchant and monk. Mm. And the Indico Ploestes, it means one that has voyaged to India. Ah. So in his role as a merchant, yes, he had travelled a lot more of the globe than a lot of people at his time. Mm. But he's the creator of the Christian topography. Right. Now, now, this is an atlas. Okay. And by the time he's done that, he's also an Nestorian monk. Now, Paulie, I'm not quite sure about the Nestorians. Where do they fit in? Oh, right, the Nestorians. Well, there's actually quite an interesting story behind that, Mikey. The Nestorians, often known as the Church of the East, these days they're regularly dismissed as a bit of a cult. But back then in the early church, they were key to the church's expansion. You see, you've got to remember Christianity back then we, yeah, we always think of it as a Western religion, but back in the early days, it was very much an Asian religion that was looking east as much as it was looking west. In fact, up until the time of Muhammad and Islam, there were actually more bishops, more dioceses to the east of Jerusalem than there were to the west. So if you're an historian, I'm assuming there must be an historius. That's right, the 5th century Patriarch of Constantinople. Now, in the 5th century, of course, the Patriarch of Constantinople, he was as important as anyone else in the whole church. He's a bit like an Orthodox Pope. But in 431 CE, this Nestorius, he is deposed at the Council of Ephesus. Now, that's the great meeting of theologians and theological minds. And their big grouch is, you know, whether it's a divine or human nature of Christ, the sort of argument between the dualists and those who believe in monophysitism. I'm so glad you said that word instead of me. Monophysitism. Okay, I'm with you so far. (laughs) Yeah, you know, what they're saying is, can Christ have two bodies? Is he just divine or does he have a human nature as well? But really, like most arguments amongst the church, it's about who has the power, who's in charge. Uh Nestorius loses the battle. He gets kicked out. And if you read Western accounts, you'll be told that the Nestorians were pushed off, never to be seen again. But the reality, actually, Mike, is quite different. In effect, the church splits into two. And in many ways, their church, the Eastern Church, thrives even better than that in the West. You know, they push into Mesopotamia, into Iran, into India, Central Asia. They even go as far as China and Mongolia, with no less than Kublai Khan's own mother being a Nestorian. So, you know, this idea of Western scholars ever since, you know, dismissing it as a cult is just yet another example of the West belittling what's happening in the East. And don't tell me, one of the accusations they throw at them is these Nestorians are all flat earthers. Exactly. But they're not. In fact, Cosmos... Indico Ploestes, that's the last time I'm going to say that. I'm going to call him Cosmos from now on. He's a lone wolf. And his book, Christian Topography, look, it may be, the volumes may be incredibly beautiful, but it's all based on the model laid out in the Tabernacle of Moses. Now, bear with me for a second. (laughs) This shows a flat earth surrounded by a sea where a much smaller body, the sun, revolves around a mountain. Right. Now, Cosmos himself, he was the first to claim that he wasn't book learned. In fact, he used to mock people who'd studied. Right. And it looks like, in fact, I'm pretty certain, everyone's pretty certain, the reason he created these Christian topographies Mm. 
was as an argument against the writings and the beliefs of philosophers that he saw as pagans who believed in a round world. Pagans like Ptolemy and Aristotle, Socrates and Plato. Yes, exactly. But as I said, these books are beautifully illustrated. In fact, the Vatican still holds, I think, about nine copies of the volumes. Mm. But the theory they contain is ridiculous and it is almost immediately discredited by his fellow monks. In fact, over in England, the Venerable Bede has already described the earth as round. Mm. And once and for all in the 9th century, a guy called Photius, the Patriarch of Constantinople, totally dismisses them as hokum. So if it's being completely dismissed by Photius, who's probably the greatest mind in the whole of medieval Europe, why are people still talking about flat earth centuries later? Well, mate, blame the Victorians. <laughs> In 1849, there's a guy called Samuel Rowbotham. Now, as I said, these Christian topographies, you know, they, they still existed and they were still known about, but he mm. comes across them and he publishes a 16-page pamphlet. It's called The Zetetic Astronomy, Earth is Not a Globe. Ooh. Yeah, okay, there's a couple of red flags here. He publishes under the pseudonym of Parallax. Parallax. Yes, he's also a practised, unlicensed doctor, mm. a quack of many spurious medical inventions, mm. and he also gets named in multiple cases of death by misadventure, one including his own child. But here's the thing. He's a very gifted public speaker, and he does these public debates, and people turn out, and he gathers supporters, the most powerful of which is an aristocrat a woman called Lady Elizabeth Blount. Right. Now, she heads the Universal Zetetic Society. The Universal Zetetic Society. What does that mean? Yes, it's it's a technical term for flat earthers. (laughs) Right. She also wrote a dubious romance novel, but she has high-level followers, including guys high up in the military, Mm -hmm. in fact, a major general, Mm -hmm. and at least one archbishop. Right. Plus another guy, a guy called William Kent. Now, he migrates to Boston Mm. and he takes his flat earth beliefs with him. And once he's in Boston, he publishes a pamphlet, 100 Proofs the Earth is Not a Globe. Mate, the book is still available today. It's still getting good reviews on Amazon. (laughs) Right. But the real culprit is actually another POM. Yeah, I had a feeling you were going to say that. Yes, mate. These theories lay pretty much dormant till the middle of the 20th century when an erstwhile inventor and sign writer, Englishman, Samuel Shelton, he stumbles across Robotham's writings and he reads them. And his first thought is, I believe this. His second thought is, why is the government keeping this from us? <laughs> He's the first one to combine a flat earth theory with a conspiracy theory. Ah. And he forms the Flat Earth Research Society and it picks at around about three and a half thousand members. Cool. And one of the problems is, by this stage it's the 1960s and there are the NASA space missions. Yeah. And it's the BBC's fault. Okay. Because they would have panels to discuss it and they'd bring him on for a bit of colour. Ah. But this actually turns against Shelton because, well, in 1969, Apollo 11, he dismisses the whole mission. In fact, I've got a quote for you here. The astronauts are hypnotised into believing they go into space. Even with their training, those chaps wouldn't even have the nerve to be fired off on top of an explosive, a rocket... And the lack of observations they bring back is negligible. Okay, that's enough. The BBC no longer had him on. Yeah. And quite frankly, the Flat Earth Society withers and dies on the vine. Mm. And by the 1970s, there's less than 100 diehards. And we have 50 years of peace and quiet. (laughs) Then along comes the internet. Right. By 2017, 1% of Americans believe the world is flat. 
Six percent aren't sure. Aren't sure. Well, they love that whole thing about you know, the flat Earth, the spirituality, and they love the conspiracy theories. But here's the thing, too, mate: these flat Earth societies—they're not universal. They splinter off. They have battles raging against <laughs> each other. They have rival conferences, no. and of course, they all have merchandise. All right, folks, so hopefully that puts an end to Flat Earthers once and for all. And I must admit, when you told me about this episode, Mikey, I thought I'd heard it all. But you've now got another piece of Victorian pseudoscience, which takes even a bigger biscuit. Yes, mate, it's the fall of 1835, and now we're back in New York. And over six articles in the New York Sun newspaper, people were enthralled about the fantastical landscape that made up the moon. Mm. Now, the sun was a recent addition to the lucrative but cutthroat world of New York journalism. This is the New York Sun you're the talking New about, York not the one in Britain. No, mate. <laughs> it only launched in 1833, and mm. its, its aim was to hit the street for a cheap price and sell a, a style of journalism that was rather kindly described as narrative in nature, ah. or we'd call it clickbait these days. <laughs> and, mate, and the clickbait was rife in this article. It described the moon as having craters. Well, that's a bit of a given. It then wanted to describe how these craters were filled with giant amethyst crystals Ooh. and populated by strange bat-like humans, as well as two-legged giant beavers <laughs> who like to ice skate, <laughs> not to mention the usual bunch of unicorns. And look, it did have a little bit of scientific kudos because it mentioned a guy called John Herschel, mm. who was a famed astronomer. Right. But it also goes on to mention a guy called Dr. John Andrew Grant, mm. who the Sun is quoting from the Edinburgh Journal of Science. Now, that all sounds Ooh. good. Yeah, but the problem is the Edinburgh Journal of Science had closed down years before this article <laughs> right. came out. So here's the thing. The real author of the articles was a guy called Richard Adams Locke, mm. a highly educated and a very witty writer at the Sun. Mm. And they were actually meant as satire. Right, so they've got someone in their sights. Who's the target? The guy they've got in their sights. You're going to love this bloke. His name is Reverend Thomas Dick. <laughs> yeah, I know, it's, it's funny already. Now, in 1823, back in England, Dick had published The Christian Philosopher or the Connection of Science and Philosophy with Religion, a book which was pretty unhinged. He estimated that the solar system it contained more than 21 trillion inhabitants. And the moon, which is, you know, you have to remember, less than a quarter of the size of the Earth, probably contained, I'm quoting here, <laughs> beings far more numerous and perhaps more elevated in the scale of intellect than the inhabitants of our globe. But Dick reckoned the, the moon had roughly four billion people living on it. Actually, no, what? they weren't people, Paul. They were unfallen angels. Ooh. And those that weren't living on the moon were also living on the sun. And this dick guy, he was serious. He was serious, so Locke took aim at him. And you have to remember, too, that Richard Adams Locke is actually a descendant of the philosopher John Locke. Right. So, you know, here's a man who's got logic on his side. But the problem was, when you're writing satire, remember how we talked about this in the April Fool's episode? Yes. If the audience is gullible, it's just going to go straight over your head. Yes. It wasn't just uneducated rubes that were taken in by this. Mm -hmm. The New York Evening Post and the New York Times also wrote glowing articles about this stuff that they thought was real. Right. It gets even more bizarre. Yale University was so impressed by the articles in The Sun 
that they sent a team of scientists to New York <laughs> to get to the bottom of things, which meant that the staff at the Sun had to spend weeks sending these scientists on fool's errands in between their printing and their editing department. <laughs> they bamboozled them to the point where they just went back to Yale and said, we're not quite sure. <laughs> and here's where it gets even sillier. The articles were later published in book form, which became a bestseller. And despite the fact that Locke admitted over and over again they were hokum and that he was intending to mock <laughs> Reverend Dick, yeah. by this stage they seem to have taken on a truth of their own. Even as Dick and Locke began a slanging match at each other through various newspapers and magazines, people seemed unwilling to let go of their desire to believe in such a fantastically populated moon. <laughs> okay, but don't tell me these moon beavers, they've still got followers on the internet. Paul, if I could just say one thing, do not Google the words moon and beaver. <laughs> Actually, mate, fortunately, Dick Locke and all the moon beaver theorists were soon well and truly killed off because within two years of this book coming out, Darwin publishes The Origin of the Species. It completely overtakes the whole science versus religion argument and the moon beavers are relegated to a rather quaint footnote in history. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there, lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. <laughs> right, which brings us to next week. And next week, Paulie, we've got extra helpings, but not just extra helpings, a whole platter full of extra helpings. Everything from who was Tom Thumb to the joke that Charlie Chaplin stole. Mm-hmm.